Before we get into today's story, if child death is a sensitive topic for you, you might want to skip this episode. Jennifer vanished sometime in the overnight hours. Right now, there is no trace. Investigators say evidence leads them to believe that she's dead. Stick my nose back on the trail. That's all I can do. This is already gone. Already gone. Already gone. Some people are just unlucky, and tragedy dogs them at each step. Other people have tragedies looming large around them and continue to walk away unscathed. Ed Amos was one of those people, until the pile of bodies around him got too big to ignore. Come with me to Anderson, Indiana, in the middle of World War II, when Lowell Edwin Amos Jr. was born. Lowell Edwin Ed Amos was born January 4, 1943, in Anderson, Indiana, to parents Mary and Lowell. He was one of three children. His mother, Mary, was a high school teacher, and his father was an engineer. His childhood was largely uneventful. Ed graduated from Madison Heights High School in 1960, and for my Detroit-area listeners, that's Madison Heights High School in Anderson, Indiana, not in Michigan. After high school, he joined the Marine Corps, serving two years before taking a job at the Delco Remy Division. I believe this was the same place that his father was an engineer. As the years passed, Ed tended to embellish his military service to suit his needs, claiming that he saw combat in Vietnam. The Indianapolis News reported Ed was a one-time foreman at Guide Lamp, later called Inland Fisher Guide Division of General Motors, and a former deacon and Sunday school teacher at First Presbyterian Church in Anderson. A friend said that Ed liked to present himself in a certain way, like a playboy. He wore a Rolex watch and drove a Cadillac. On December 8, 1965, Ed married Sandra Hurd. Sandra was born August 18, 1942, in Anderson, Indiana, to parents William and Mary. Like Ed's mother, Sandra was a high school teacher and was described by neighbors as a warm and friendly person who liked to cook. The couple would go on to have several children, but tragedy struck the family early. Their son, Clifford Thomas, died in 1971 when he was just nine days old. And their second son, John Anthony, born in November of 1972, lived only 32 days, passing away just before Christmas. Ed and Sandra went on to have other children that survived, and the family lived in Anderson, which is about 40 miles northeast of Indianapolis. On January 13, 1979, Ed Amos announced he was running as a Republican for the mayoral seat in Anderson. Eleven days later, Sandra was dead. She'd told Connie, her neighbor and friend, that Ed had taken out a sizable life insurance policy on her. Connie said that they teased her that Ed would knock her off for the insurance money, which is less funny when Sandra dies under mysterious circumstances. On January 23, 36-year-old Sandra spoke about Ed's mayoral candidacy at the Lady Elks Club meeting. Later that night, around 10 p.m., Sandra went to her neighbor Connie's place and they shared a beer. Around 10.30 p.m., Sandra left after Ed called and said he was home early from work at the Fisher plant. Hours later, around 3 a.m., it's now January 24th, Connie heard someone pound on her front door. 
When she opened the door, she saw Sandra's two children who said, Something is wrong with Mommy, and the ambulance is stuck in the snow. Connie's husband went and helped free the ambulance, and Connie went into the house. Ed had called authorities to report that he'd found Sandra dead in the bathroom. Connie entered Sandra and Ed's home, a place she'd visited many times. Once inside, she saw Ed burning Sandra's clothes in the fireplace. She told the Associated Press, quote, He told me it was Sandra's clothing, because they were bloody. Ed told authorities that Sandra had mixed a sedative with wine, then she'd gone into the bathroom. That's where she collapsed and hit her head on the bathroom counter. When investigators entered the home, they found Sandra lying naked on the floor. There was no blood on her body, nor was there any blood visible in the bathroom. On January 25th, the Muncie Evening Press reported that Sandra died of an apparent drug overdose. Also on January 25th, Ed withdrew from the mayoral race, telling the media he wanted to be with his children. An autopsy did not reveal Sandra's cause of death. It was shown as undetermined. What they did know is that Sandra had an abrasion near her eye, fluid in her lungs, and tests revealed the presence of alcohol and the sleep aid Dalmain in her system. In the weeks after her death, Ed collected a $350,000 life insurance policy. He used some of that money to hire a nanny to live with the children, while he relocated by himself to Middletown, Indiana. And this situation lasted for more than a year. Those poor kids. Now, listeners, I need to mention that $350,000 in 1979 is like $1.3 million today. It was quite a windfall. Investigators kept looking into Sandra's mysterious death until a letter from Ed's attorney put a stop to their work. He said he felt harassed and wanted to be left alone. In the spring of 1980, just 14 months after Sandra died, Ed married his second wife, Carolyn Lawrence. He'd known Carolyn while married to Sandra, and it's rumored they were more than friends at that time. The book Murder 2, the second casebook of forensic detection, by Colin Evans? In the book, he described Carolyn as Ed's longtime mistress. The pair met at Inland Fisher Guide. Ed was a foreman, and Carolyn worked the line. Like her new husband, Carolyn had known tragedy. She had three children from a previous marriage, including her son Danny, who died shortly after birth. The marriage of Carolyn and Ed seemed happy and unremarkable until 1988, when she tossed him out of the marital home. It seems that Ed had once again taken out a large life insurance policy on his wife. Carolyn demanded that he get rid of the policy, and when Ed refused, she kicked him out. So Ed went to live with his mother, Mary Tolls. Mary had taken a second husband after Ed's father died unexpectedly at age 58 in 1967. Now widowed for a second time, she welcomed her son into the home. Mary Tolls has only weeks left to live. According to Murder 2, the second casebook of forensic detection by Colin Evans, a few weeks after Ed moved in, Mary was rushed to the hospital, seemingly stupefied. Doctors were unable to diagnose the problem, and when she soon recovered, she went home. Carolyn called the house frequently to check on her mother-in-law, but one hot summer day she called and was surprised when Ed answered the phone. His mother was dead. Carolyn hurried over to the house and arrived to find Ed loading his belongings into the car. He said he didn't want people to know he'd been living with his mother. 
Once his stuff was cleared out, Ed phoned the authorities and reported her death. Mary Tolles was pronounced dead at 5 a.m. on July 26, 1988. Because Mary was 77 years old, no autopsy was performed. Her sudden death was blamed on ventricular hypertrophy and hypertension. With his mother deceased, Ed was free to cash in on the life insurance policy he'd taken out on her. In this instance, he received benefits totaling $1 million. That's $2.5 million in today's money. With the death of his mother, Ed and Carolyn reunited and rekindled their marriage. In the days following the death of her mother-in-law, Carolyn called her son Gary into the Amos Home Library. She pulled a book off the shelf and showed it to him. The book was titled, How to Kill People. The book scared her, and it should have, because Carolyn Amos will be dead in less than a year. On April 6, 1989, at 12.05 a.m., Carolyn Amos is pronounced dead in the Middleton, Indiana home she shared with her husband. Now, Ed was in no hurry to report Carolyn's death. By the time authorities arrived on scene, Carolyn's body was cold to the touch. When questioned by police, Ed relayed the following story. He and his wife had gone out to dinner that night. They returned home, and Carolyn poured herself a glass of wine, which she took into the bathroom. She was drinking the wine while she blow-dried her hair. When he went to check on her, he found her on the floor, and she was dead. Ed assumed she'd electrocuted herself with a hairdryer, and as a side note, some accounts say she was curling her hair, and it was a curling iron that electrocuted her, not a hairdryer, but listeners, I think it was a hairdryer. When police searched for the wine glass, they found it rinsed out and sitting in the dishwasher. A further search of the house revealed one more item of interest, a rag with a foul-smelling liquid on it. Now, when a young and healthy woman dies, there's going to be an autopsy. And when the autopsy was done, they found no sign of electrocution, and a search of the home found no issues with the wiring in the bathroom. The coroner found her death unusual and noted both Valium and alcohol in her blood. He ran extensive tests, but located nothing else of interest. The pathologists believe that Carolyn had possibly been smothered, and also, upon viewing photos of how her body was found, the pathologist believed her body had been moved or placed in the position where it was recovered. He also noted frothing around the mouth, which is a sign that the respiratory system was blocked. Listeners, Ed Amos has a sad and tragic tale to tell of dead wives and dead children and a dead mother. But the worst is yet to come. We'll be right back. In the summer of 1991, Ed Amos was a twice-widowed man with a lot of money in the bank from life insurance policies. Like I mentioned earlier in the episode, he had a taste for the finer things with his Cadillac and expensive jewelry. It was August of 1991 when Ed confided in a sex worker that would later testify against him that he'd killed Carolyn and would probably kill his next wife as well. When Carolyn died, there was an $800,000 insurance payout waiting for him, so Ed was doing all right financially. And he already had the next Mrs. Ed Amos lined up. Like with Carolyn, he found her at work. Fisher Inland had been good to him in many ways. And while Carolyn had worked the line, the new wife, Bobby, was a cashier in accounting. Ed and Bobby married on March 6, 1993, in Pendleton, Indiana. Ed knew Bobby's mom, Marie, from the plant. They'd worked together for years. 
She knew Ed's history and was concerned about her daughter becoming involved with him. Bobby was much younger than Ed, where his first two wives had been a few months older than him. Bobby was born in 1957, making him 50 to her 36 years old. Bobby had been married previously, tying the knot at 18 for a short-lived marriage that produced one son. After decades of service to Inland Fisher, Ed took his pension and moved to Detroit in search of better opportunities and a new business. This business, Preferred Financial, was being launched with a partner, Bert Crabtree. And while Ed was in Detroit, Bobby and her son lived in an apartment in Pendleton, Indiana. According to the Detroit Free Press, Preferred Financial was a firm that matched businesses with professional contractors, and they specialized in high-risk loans. I suspect that Ed was having a good time in Detroit with his business partner. Ed was nice-looking, he had money, and plenty of free time with his young wife being another state away. And when I comment on his looks, I should mention that I read somewhere that Ed had plastic surgery to help him maintain his youthful appearance. In December of 1994, Ed and Bobby attended a holiday party in Greektown. Greektown is a popular night spot slash neighborhood in Detroit. The two of them ate and drank, they danced and partied into the small hours. They returned to their room at the Athenaeum Suite Hotel after 2 a.m. Now, in addition to drinking and dancing, the pair was also using cocaine. It was 8 a.m. when Ed started calling his business partner, Bert Crabtree. He insisted that Bert come to his room right away. When Bert finally dressed and arrived, bringing along a preferred financial employee by the name of Daniel Porcasi, it was 9.30 a.m. The door to the room was answered by a shirtless Ed Amos. Ed was smoking a cigarette and told the men that he and Bobby were using cocaine, but she'd overdosed. Ed told them he needed time to clean up the room before he called the authorities. He handed a bag to Perkazi and said he should take the bag home with him. Perkazi did what he was told. When Perkazi looked in the bag, he saw an odd assortment of items, including a six-inch-long syringe filled with yellow liquid. There was no needle on the syringe. There was also a sport jacket, which I think might be a men's blazer, and a hotel washcloth. Porkazi later said the washcloth stunk and had a foul-smelling substance on it. If that sounds familiar, there was a similar nasty washcloth found at Carolyn's death scene just a few years earlier. Once Ed had the room straightened to his liking, he called the front desk and asked for help. A hotel security officer reported to the room and quickly notified Detroit police. When Detroit's finest arrived on scene, they found Bobby's body on the bed, covered with a sheet. Ed would tell the police that he and his pretty young wife were drinking and partying, and yes, there was some drug use. The term cocaine-fueled sex game was used. Ed said that he'd snorted cocaine, but Bobby inserted the drug into her system anally and vaginally because of her sinus issues. Eventually, Ed decided he was going to get some sleep, but Bobby stayed up and continued using the drug. When he woke up around 5 a.m., she was dead. Concerned, he flushed the remainder of the cocaine down the toilet, cleaned up the room, and called for help. Ed was taken in for questioning, and, after his release from the police department, he returned to the hotel to fetch Bobby's Rolex from the hotel safe. 
Then he drove to his partner, Crabtree's house, and the two of them visited Daniel Porcasi to retrieve the bag he'd taken from the room that morning. The contents of the bag, particularly the syringe and the stinky washcloth, would never be recovered. When Bobby's death made the news, Detroit police were flooded with calls about the deaths of Ed's mother and his previous wives. Other women called to say that they'd had sex with Ed Amos and were sure that he'd drugged them prior to intercourse. According to the Detroit Free Press, two days after Bobby's death, Ed worked all day on a Troy business venture and spent $1,000 bar hopping in Detroit with friends, including two women who wound up in his bed the next morning. When an autopsy is performed by Dr. Sawait Kanluen, the Wayne County Chief Medical Examiner, they observe no signs that Bobby suffered internal or external injuries except for an abrasion on Bobby's forehead and two small bruises on her body. What was interesting and worth noting was the amount of cocaine in Bobby's system. Her cocaine level was a 3.7. That is 14 or 15 times the average level in deaths caused by overdose. It was the highest cocaine level the medical examiner had ever seen. Bobby also had a blood alcohol level of 0.08, and in Michigan, a 0.10 is considered drunk. The medical examiner determined that Bobby died of acute cocaine poisoning very soon after the cocaine was introduced, and as of 11 a.m., she'd been dead for between four and eight hours. He determined there was so much of the drug in her system that Bobby could not have ingested the cocaine herself. She would have been incapacitated, so she would have needed help to get all of that cocaine into her system. His examination of her body showed no needle marks and no evidence of previous drug use. According to the Associated Press, Dr. Suzanne White, assistant professor of emergency medicine at Wayne State University, testified that Bobby wouldn't have simply fallen asleep or died quietly had she overdosed. Dr. White said symptoms of a cocaine overdose include nervousness, agitation, and hyperactivity. Bobby would have likely experienced violent fits before her death. How could Ed Amos have slept through this activity while on the same bed as his wife? I mean, he'd also been using cocaine, so it's unlikely he'd be able to sleep at all. So something is seriously off about his story. When they searched the hotel room, they noticed that one of the pillows was smeared with makeup, yet Bobby's face was clean of any cosmetics. When they looked more closely at the pillow, they found teeth marks, as if Bobby had been smothered and fought for her life. Police interviewed Bobby's family. Her mother and sister were suspicious of a drug overdose, as Bobby was anti-drug. They also pointed out that Ed Amos now had not one, not two, but three dead wives. And listeners, no one has that much bad luck. A forensic chemist would testify that a vaginal swab taken from Bobby revealed trace amounts of cocaine, but rectal and oral swabs were negative. However, when they looked at the hotel bedsheet, it was covered with cocaine residue. One of the stains on the sheet indicated the cocaine was likely in liquid form when introduced to her body. They also found signs that someone tried to clean her up. Taking the autopsy and crime scene evidence into account, investigators were certain that Bobby was murdered. But Ed denied killing his wife, saying she used the cocaine and administered it to herself vaginally using a device. 
He said, look, he cleaned up the room to avoid drug charges, not to conceal any other wrongdoing. Now, investigators, they knew Ed was lying, but there wasn't enough to charge him with murder. Weeks after her death, Ed relocated to Las Vegas, Nevada. Meanwhile, Michigan investigators start talking with police in Indiana about his previous wives and, of course, the death of his mother. Indiana investigators learned that not only was Bobby unhappy in the marriage, back in September she'd bought a house for herself and her son in Pendleton, Indiana, using her previous married name. By the end of November, Bobby and her son moved in. She'd learned Ed was having an affair with a woman named Mary, and Bobby did not intend to stick around for this kind of mistreatment. Meanwhile, this Mary person gave Ed an ultimatum, get out of the marriage or our relationship is over. According to a story in the Detroit Free Press, this Mary was not the only person Ed was seeing on the side. At the start of 1994, Ed Amos had at least one mistress, a crumbling third marriage, and, as he confided to his lover Mary, he was broke. The stress was getting to him. It was time to act. According to his business partner, Bert Crabtree, Preferred Financial took a $225,000 loss during their first year of business. Things are not looking up. When interviewed, Bobby's mother, Marie, told police that between her and Bobby, they'd loaned Ed nearly $50,000 over the past couple of years. In November of 1995, Ed Amos was arrested in Las Vegas, Nevada, for the murder of Bobby Amos. He was charged with two counts of first-degree murder, murder by poisoning, and murder with premeditation and deliberation. And make a note of this, two charges, one murder situation, because it's going to come up later. The trial will start in September of 1996. The jury had to determine if Bobby's death was because of her actions or the actions of her husband. Was this a tragic overdose or a malicious murder? Wayne County prosecutors were limited in what they could introduce in court. They couldn't discuss or introduce any evidence regarding the death of Ed's first wife or the death of his mother because the circumstances of their deaths were so different from what happened with Bobby. They could discuss the 1989 death of Carolyn Amos, and note, Ed was never charged in any of these deaths, only Bobby's. According to an appeal document, the state had a list of reasons why Carolyn's death should be allowed into evidence, mainly the similarities between the cases. Ed was the last one to see each of them alive. Ed found both of their bodies. There was a delay in calling for help to get medical assistance for them. When medical help did arrive, the body was cold. Ed said both deaths were accidental when evidence suggested otherwise. Both crime scenes showed evidence being tampered with or destroyed, such as putting the wine glass in the dishwasher, and when he gave the sport jacket, syringe, and washcloth to his employee. Finally, both deaths had rags with a similar unpleasant smell. But there were some differences. Carolyn's death was not poisoning by way of cocaine, and there didn't appear to be a financial motive in Bobby's case because there was no life insurance policy. Because the deaths of both Carolyn and Bobby featured a delay in Ed calling for help, investigators had a body that was already cold, and the concealment of evidence, the judge ruled Carolyn's death could be discussed at the trial. According to the Detroit Free Press, during the second week of trial, 
Amos's defense attorney, Robert Mitchell, questioned the officer in charge of the case, a Sergeant Patrick Hanahan. When Mitchell asked the sergeant why he went to Las Vegas to arrest Ed, the sergeant responded that there were three other suspicious deaths linked to the defendant. Well, this didn't go over well in court. Mitchell immediately called for a mistrial because the other two deaths, that of Ed's first wife, Sandra, and Ed's mother, were not to be brought up. The defense accused the sergeant of deliberately saying three suspicious deaths. The judge agreed and a mistrial was declared. But the judge then stayed his decision, which allowed prosecutors to file an emergency appeal with the court. Meanwhile, the jury is sent home for a long weekend. On Monday, the Court of Appeals decided that the sergeant had no choice but to answer the question truthfully. It was the only way to avoid telling a lie on the stand, and we all know that is a big no-no. The trial went on as if the statement was never spoken. The jury was unaware of what happened during their long weekend. According to Murder 2, the second casebook of forensic detection, the prosecution believed Ed didn't have a financial motive to kill Bobby. Instead, he killed her because he knew she was going to leave him, and he couldn't stand the rejection. He injected her with cocaine, then smothered her with the pillow as the violent fits associated with cocaine poisoning began. During the trial, the prosecution presented their case, saying no one could be as unlucky as Ed Amos. Nancy Westveld was one of the prosecutors, and she was ideal for this case because she'd worked previously as a nurse before pursuing law. She understood the medical intricacies and could translate them well for the jury. Prosecutors described Ed as a diabolical and successful killer who murdered for money and convenience. Now, listeners, surprisingly enough, Ed didn't have a large life insurance policy on Bobby, but he knew she was going to leave him. She'd bought a house without him, and Ed, who couldn't stand the thought of being publicly rejected, took his revenge by killing her with a cocaine overdose. For the defense, we have Robert Mitchell, who painted Bobby's death as a tragic accident, just like the death of Carolyn Amos some seven years earlier. Bobby, she was an inexperienced drug user, so it's no surprise she overdosed. According to the Detroit Free Press, the defense called the prosecution hogwash, twisted facts, and manipulated evidence. Mitchell painted Amos as a grieving widower. Ed Amos did take the stand in his own defense, and he did not do well. Prosecutor Westfeld brought a duffel bag filled with sexual aids, including clamps, blindfolds, and handcuffs. She told the jury that Ed said Bobby used sexual devices to get cocaine into her system. She asked Ed to remove the items from the bag and explain their uses. Ed told her to do it, and the defense objected. Mitchell and Westveld exchanged barbs all afternoon until the judge threatened each of them with fines if they didn't knock it off. And at one point, Westveld had Ed recreate how Bobby used the sexual devices. She made him dip a device in a cup of water, then dip it into a bag of flour. The flour was being used in place of cocaine. Can you imagine how these visuals played out in front of a jury? On October 24, 1996, after days of deliberations, the jury found Ed Amos guilty of two counts of first-degree murder. According to the University of Detroit Mercy Law School, Many feared that Ed would be acquitted, or that the jury would find him guilty on lesser charges. 
Westfeld later said Amos was easy to prosecute because of his arrogance. Ed Amos thought he was smarter than everyone else. Thankfully, he was wrong. On November 4, 1996, Amos was sentenced to two life terms. At sentencing, Ed read a short statement where he maintained his innocence. He told the judge, quote, I hope and pray that this is the first and last time you have to sentence an innocent man. The judge replied, Mr. Amos, I think you have to be one of the most dangerous criminals around because you have no conscience. Ed's son, Ed Jr., defended his father, saying that justice definitely lost today. And not surprisingly, Ed Amos appealed his conviction. His appeal was like other murder appeals. The prosecutor said mean things, ineffective counsel, etc., etc. But Ed did have a point on one of his appeals. He claimed convicting him on two counts of first-degree murder violated double jeopardy, and the court agreed. So on August 18, 1998, the Court of Appeals affirmed his conviction, but ordered an amended sentence. All of his other appeals were unsuccessful, and in the end, his sentence did not change. Life without parole. For Ed Amos, who died in prison on January 5, 2022, he served a full sentence. I'm Nina Instead, the writer, producer, and voice behind the Already Gone podcast. I appreciate you listening, and please be safe. Mm-hmm.